to episode five of the Far Post podcast. They didn't say we'd make it to five episodes, but we proved them wrong. So cop that, imaginary people I've made up for this intro. Let's start with some more women's football chat. It's been another big week. There's lots to get through, so we'll crack into it. It's a little bit different to last week. Obviously, there was a lot of Tony chat. There was a lot of positive Tony chat. It was basically a Tony loving, but now we're back to our usual shtick. So let's start with some you love to see it. Sam, what did you love to see this weekend? So I loved to see this weekend a bunch of fantastic Australian players scoring in the semi-finals of the New South Wales MPLW, including one Claire Wheeler, one ding, ding, Michelle ding, ding, Heyman. Yes, yes, there's the there's the klaxon. Um, but my favourite goal of the weekend was actually Grace Ma. Uh, Grace Ma made her return for Sydney Uni after being injured and she scored an absolute fucking banger uh, to, to help Sydney Uni get to the to the grand final. She scored almost from halfway. It was extraordinary. So, yeah, it's really good to see Grace Ma back. I'm really excited about her going back to Canberra. Um, yeah, so Ma scoring Maldives. Love to see it. You love to see it. Angela, what did you love to see this weekend? I did love to see um, Maka come out of the box and head the ball away. That was probably the highlight of my 10 p.m. till 3 a.m. FAWSL watching session last night. <laughs> so much football, so little sticking in my brain. But, yes, I love to see that. That was that was very fun. Anna, what did you love to see this weekend? Well, Marissa, you love to see Perth product but Melbourne favourite, Ella Mastrantonio, notching an assist in the FAWSL. Um, picture this. It's uh, nil all Bristol v Arsenal and uh, catches Leah Williamson of all players, dallying on the ball, pinches it, puts through a really nice uh, through ball for Abby Harrison to score the opener. Um, Arsenal, of course, went on to win the game, but I think Leah Williamson might still be looking for where Ella Mastrantonio went with the ball. So, <laughs> Ella Mastrantonio, you love to see it. You'd love to see it. And I get to include one this week, which is always very exciting. It's the goal the world loved to see. Katarina Jukic playing over in the uh, MPLW in WA scores. So let's, again, we'll set the scene. So imagine you scoring just outside or just inside the box, the audacity to go for it. You'd love to see it. But then you add another layer of audacity when it's a chip over the keeper. You love to see it. And then just to, like, go max level audacity, it's a Rabona. It's a Rabona chip just inside the box to score a goal. You absolutely love to see it. So, Katarina Jukic, well done to you. Honestly, just good job. I'm so proud of you. I don't know you, but well done. It was a joy to watch your goal. Absolutely incredible. You love to see it. Um, Another thing that we love to see is Marissa's hand gestures during this Zoom chat as she was describing Jukic's goal just now. Lots of Italian hand gestures, lots of kissing of the lips. You love to see that as well. And you know what you love to see? Us really building our way through the you love to see it. Because, boy, if we'd finished, if we'd started and finished on Sam pumping up Claire Wheeler, the people would have stopped believing us. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God, we have been told after uh, last week's Angela birthday shout out, we have been told that we should record these things. And I think my um, you love to see it proves that we should not record these things for <laughs> the safety of the people who consume this podcast. But all right, let's get that out of the way. Let's start with some FAWSL chat. So last week, we didn't get to talk about FA Cup and whatnot, but we have a final set for that. It's Everton v Man City. That will be at the start of November. November 1st should be November 2nd for us down here, but that's very exciting. So can't wait to watch that. Hope we can watch that in some sort of legal way and not using a VPN, but that's unimportant. This week we had lots of games, lots of goals, lots of Aussies doing really good stuff. So let's crack into that. We had Hayley Razo just absolutely doing the thing. Sam, what did you make of Hayley Razo's performance this weekend? So Hayley Razo has been pretty extraordinary um, in the last couple of weeks for Everton. And uh, like one of the things that 
you know, one of the, the big concerns that we've been having, right, when it comes to the FAWSL in these opening rounds is that we feel like the top, the big three teams are going to accelerate away, that the teams that can afford to buy all the best players are just going to absolutely trounce the league and, you know, they're going to finish miles ahead of everybody else. But Everton are really starting to shape up as a dark horse here and Hayley Rasso is sort of in the thick of the action in a lot of those cases. So Rasso assisted the goal uh, for Everton to get through to the uh, semi-final of the FA Cup. Um, she was responsible for the, for Everton defeating Chelsea, which was amazing. I think that was the first time in any of the competitions going at the moment where a team outside of the top three had defeated one of the top three. Um, and since then, uh, when they sort of translate that, well, oh, this past weekend when they've when Everton uh, defeated Aston Villa you saw how how beautifully that team is working together, even though they don't really have any of the big names that we would expect from a team to post that kind of a scoreline. And Rasso, the more comfortable she's getting in that position, the more familiar she's becoming with her teammates, um, the more acclimatised she's becoming to the system that Willie Kirk is playing, the better she's getting. So she started off by, you know, being really, you know, good and zippy and, and involved in a lot of the early games. But now she's actually like tallying stuff. She's scoring, she's assisting, she's getting secondary assists as well. Um, and she's really, I think, embodying the kind of energy that Everton are wanting to have this season. You know, she, she leads from the front. They're a team that <clears throat> likes to press quite high, really energetic. Um, they're really well organised. She tracks back. They're really sort of solid um, and um, organised in terms of their formation as well when they're off the ball. So, like, everything that she's been doing, um, particularly in the last month, has been really, really fun to watch. And I'm super excited to see how much better she gets uh, because she's playing in this environment now <clears throat> and whether Everton can actually take the form, their, their sort of the FA Cup form into the FAWSL as well. Sam, I've loved the way that um, Razzo and their players have combined. I think they've been really astute with their recruiting. We saw a lot of Claire Emsley in the W League, who it's a classic example of recruiting a player who's in form, proven goal scorer, was on a goal scoring run. She's taken that form over after not being able to play for Orlando because of their COVID situation over in the Challenge Cup. Um, they picked up uh, Valerie Gerben, who's a proven goal scorer. Proven goal scorers don't just lose that. Izzy Christensen is clearly a gun player um, who's had her injuries the last couple of years, but quality does that. Quality players who want to prove themselves are just so hungry and valuable. And the good thing with Razzo is what we've seen is I think she's become that bit more clinical. Um, we know at the World Cup last year, you hate to you hate to talk about it, but the Norway game, we know she had a couple of golden chances early that I think if she had them now, she'd probably bury um, and that's what's been really pleasing. She's putting those chances away. She's making those chances that she's creating more guilt-edged, I guess. They're more clinical and it's it's what I think we can really benefit from going forward. So, yeah, Haley Haley's just in some sort of form. And, uh, yeah, as you say, Sam, you love to see this Everton team really contend and push the best because they've got a sustainable game style. They've got a smart manager and... It's great for us because we're the ones that are going to benefit from it if Hayley keeps performing the way she is. I suppose another player that is doing really good things at the moment and that the Matildas are set to benefit from her solid performances at the moment is Caitlin Ford. Arsenal's also killing it at the moment. Uh, Kate Ford's been killing it and shown that she can both uh, work as an impact player off the bench and has shown in her last couple of performances that she can provide from the start as well. So, Angela, what did you make of Katie Ford's last couple of performances? She's playing really well and um, it's great to see that she can combine with pretty much, I think she's combined with Evans off the top of my head. I could be wrong there. Miedemar, Rod, the obvious one, mm. Rod to Ford. We love that. Um, I do wonder if Rod's uh, recent injury has been what, the catalyst for Ford, you know, starting, but she's obviously deserving to be there, improving her worth and, you know, getting goals and getting assists. So, yeah, loving it. And I think, um, Anna, you might want to expand a little bit on this, but with Ford in great form, that's really positive in terms of players like Kerr as well and even Rasso. So, yeah. 
that's exactly what I wanted to bounce off, Angela. The way you touched on um, how Ford has been able to combine with all those different players. Um, we know she's always had that versatility um, in terms of strings to her bow, but she's really shown it. And, yeah, I think the thing with Ford and Razzo both firing is, one, it takes the pressure off Sam Kerr, but also it um, – it makes her life easier. Like we heard Tony Gustafsson the other day. I know there's a lot of talk about tempo, but he's saying, you know, games are won and lost in the 18-yard box. And if there's one thing you can say about the Matildas in the last couple of years, it's a, a lot of the time the clinical finishing hasn't been there in the 18-yard box. And one way you get clinical finishing is having better connection, better delivery. And I think you look at some of Razzo's deliveries and some of Ford's deliveries as well. The the ball she put through, I think it's for Jordan Nobbs and – um, that little dummy you mentioned last week, Angela, just these smart bits of play, these incisive bits of play that come from being around really good players all the time that these players I think have shown in glimpses for the Matildas but are now showing, if not week in, week out at club level, they could well soon be doing that. And I think that's that's a really exciting place to be because you don't want to be a team that relies on Sam Kerr getting the ball too much because when she gets isolated it makes life difficult for her it makes life difficult for everyone else but if Ford and Razzo can keep building up this form and momentum and getting more clinical and creating and finishing chances we look a whole lot more threatening then when you mention your Emily Gilnicks who are banging in goals in in Sweden for fun like it just adds that extra bit of depth yeah I was at a, a party this long weekend and I was talking to um someone there who asked me about Sam Kerr. They weren't really a, a football person, but they knew they knew enough about the Matildas to be able to ask me this question. And they said, if Sam Kerr gets injured, does that is that like really terrible for the Matildas? Is that sort of a it's a it's a win or lose kind of situation if she goes down? And I sort of had to think to myself for a minute, you know, and I was like, actually, maybe yes. But now, as Harry said and as Angela said, now that we're seeing these other players starting to step up and take over those roles, I'm feeling maybe a little bit more confident going forward. And I think perhaps one of the things we'll see in the camp that's hopefully going to come up in November, um, and if there's a friendly game that's organised um, in that window, we'll be able to see what could happen if there is a Sam Kerr absence. You know, mm. she maybe hasn't been in the same kind of form that Rasso and and Ford and, and other sort of Matilda's forwards have been in the last few weeks. Um, and maybe there's going to be an opportunity for us to see what that looks like in the Matilda's context. So, yeah, so it's it's great overall. I think that we, we're having more players who are able to step into the Sam Kerr role if Sam Kerr is not firing. Um, because as we saw at the World Cup, you know, we are quite heavily dependent on Sam Kerr and if she's not performing if she's not able to do it then we need to have players who can. Something else we'd like to see at the November camp is Alana Kennedy as a centre-back because we need centre-backs just like we need Sam Kerr up forward scoring goals we need Alana Kennedy stopping them but um, that is not what she's doing at Tottenham at the moment she has pushed into that midfield role we've discussed it a couple of times Angela what's your take on Kennedy as the defensive mid? You know, I'm not stressed because Emily Van Egmond is a centre-back now, according to, <laughs> to some graphics that I saw yesterday. So it's an easy switch. <laughs> I'm not bothered. I know I'm very, I'm a very anxious person, but I, seeing that just calmed me right down. You know? Anyway, no, I'm joking. I'm joking. Um, I think speaking about these really informed Matildas, we're still seeing um, the likes of – Kennedy and Van Egmond finding their feet um, in like at Spurs and at West Ham, and I think this this weekend was perhaps an example of seeing some of those teething issues. I don't think Van Egmond was particularly didn't make much of a um, impact for West Ham with their loss one nil to Reading. Yes, this morning. Oh, this morning. Um, and similar with Kennedy, um, she was up against one of the world's best in Sam Ewis as as well as an array of other city midfielders and um yeah that that, that Tottenham lost quite quite badly but yeah Sam maybe you wanted to elaborate a little bit on that I know that you were paying close attention to the rinsing you may you may phrase it (laughs) 
The rinsing? Yes, the rinsing. But then, like I say that she got absolutely rinsed by Sam Ewers, but everybody gets absolutely rinsed by Sam Ewers. And really, I just want an excuse to talk about Sam Ewers, not just because I my name is one letter away from being Sam Ewers, but also because as a fellow tall lady, I'm like, yes, look at you go. Look at you move from box to box and just absolutely gliding past these people. This player who a couple of years ago was not even on US Women's National Team radars is now absolutely bossing it across two of the biggest leagues in the world. You know, she's just extraordinary. And I, I, it was such a, um, a telling... I think, sign of the sort of the gulf in class between US players and Australian players in that particular midfield battle. Um, but also when Muir's came up against players like Daniel van der Donk in the FA Cup, um, like that like that was, and van der Donk being one of the best midfielders on the planet as well, but Muir's just like, was like, nah, I'm just going to move past you like this and go and score this goal. It's like it was nothing. Um, so, yeah, so she's extraordinary and I think that it's, it's, I'm not a fan of Kennedy um, in the midfield. I think that not just because we need more depth at centre-back, but I also don't think Kennedy has the turning circle that you need to be a good six. Um, she can spray passes around, which is great, but I think you need to be a bit more disciplined and also perhaps a bit faster. Uh, I don't really think Kennedy is that quick. I think maybe she's better utilised um being able to see the entire field in front of her and making decisions on that basis rather than having a 360 vision. I mean, I'm happy to be proven wrong though. I just really want to stress the centre-backs thing again. Like, it's been interesting seeing the reviews of Kennedy in midfield and I don't know if it's because we, Sam, have our um, preconceptions of Kennedy as a centre-back and then you see people talking about, Tottenham fans talk about how much they're enjoying seeing Kennedy there. Um so, but regardless of how well she's playing in the defensive midfield, you can't, you know, it, it's a big gaping hole in the centre-back stocks. Like, it looks like Emma Checker may well have picked up another injury based on seeing, I think it was Ellie Carpenter's Insta post where she's uh, where she's on crutches. Um, and then I think Jenna McCormick was left on the bench for Real Batiste on the weekend. Laura Brock's playing a bit in France, but Claire Polkion's playing in Norway. But we know a number of these players have had injuries or in Checker and McCormick's places. Um, sorry, in their cases, are still trying to establish themselves as, you know, national team quality centre-backs. They're still learning. They're still growing. So clearly Alana Kennedy is our best centre-back um, and it's hard to see where we can plug that gap if she's not there because these are all good players, but you want to have your best one there, I would have thought, if you can have her there. So it just, uh, I guess the conversations may well happen in November when Tony Gustafsson's got to decide, sorry, when Tony Gustafsson's got to decide where he wants Alana Kennedy, because if he decides he wants her at centre back, then I don't know how much help it is necessarily if she's spending the whole season uh, in defensive midfield. I'm just wondering, with something like Alana Kennedy going into um, the midfield, would she have made the decision to move to Spurs potentially on the fact that she could get that game time and without? the like a Matilda's coach behind her perhaps advising hey maybe maybe that's not the way I don't know do you know what I mean because I think there's like two sort of tensions at play here it's the personal what you want as a player and what you want to be doing and then obviously you know the the big picture of the Matildas which we keep coming back to um all of this club football circling back to how it's going to affect the Matildas in 2023 ultimately well we know I'm just interested we know that is one thing that Kennedy does enjoy doing. She likes playing defensive midfield. She's played there at Orlando before. She played there when she was a bit younger um, at Sydney FC, I think. Um, correct me if I'm wrong on that, but she definitely played there at Orlando. And I think there is obviously some benefits in terms of your passing range, your decision-making, improving those sorts of things. Um, and I'm sure she is improving game by game doing those. But the other thing we need is we need her up against those best strikers in the world. She's, you know, if she, you'd rather her be training against Alex Morgan as a centre-back, playing against Vivian Midema as a centre-back, uh, against Beth England as a centre-back. Like, these are the players we're going to have to face um, if we want to be one of the best teams in the world. And we need our best players going toe-to-toe with the best uh, players rather than maybe getting stranded further up the field, for example. Um, so it's a really interesting one. I think it's going to be see how – sorry, it's going to be interesting to see how it all plays out. Um, but, yeah, Tottenham's need to start getting some uh, points on the board too. As for Emily Van Egmond, I think that one's a little bit um, of an easier 
fix. I think she's just playing a little bit too defensively um, and that's not really her her strength, as I'm sure a lot of people have seen um, in, in previous years and in Matilda's performances as well. And I do find it surprising because I think that there are quite a few players at West Ham who she are akin to Melbourne City players from last season that she could link up with. I think that's the great that's the exciting thing about Emily Van Egmond is her foresight and um that that link in place. So I don't know. Hopefully Matt Beard just like shuffles her up the pitch a little bit. <laughs> anyway, I'm less concerned. I'm not or oh, not I'm concerned, but I'm not <laughs> concerned about Van Egmond. I'm maybe concerned no, 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 about no, your angle, Angela, but um, I'm not concerned about Van Egmond because uh, it's a, it was her first start the other day. I think it takes time for players to settle in, to find their groove per se, and we know she's got that incredible attacking range, so hopefully we get to see that in action sooner rather than later. Yes, please. <laughs> Very soon, please. <laughs> I'm stressed. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so just to, I suppose, round out F-A-W-S-L, FAWSL chat, I'm not good with acronyms, um, quick shout-out, I suppose, to Steph Catley and Lydia Williams, who are still out injured. Ankle surgery was what's keeping Lydia out, and then Steph Catley's got a tight calf, so hopefully they're on the pitch sooner rather than later, and we get to see them absolutely killing it like most of their teammates And unfortunately, the injury theme kind of continues when we move to the continent. As we mentioned, Emma Checker's hobbling around France on crutches. Not sure the exact details of the injury, but hopefully it's short-lived and she's playing soon. And Tegan Micah is apparently out injured as well. She had an Instagram story uh, I think maybe last week, saying that she's going to be doing lots of uh, lots of running off the pitch for about nine weeks. So not sure on specifics with either of their injuries, but we don't like to see the players out. So hopefully they are back on the pitch soon. So speaking with, on the continent, we had a couple of other goals that probably could have made it in the You Love to See It, but it would have been then a whole podcast of You Love to See It. So, Harrow, talk to us about some of the other goals on the continent. Yeah, first up, shout out to friend of the pod, Anne O'Dong. We know you're listening, Anne, um, for bringing this one to our attention. Hey, Anne. Hi, We're coming back to you later. Uh, um, but Anne shared this video of um, – Katrina Gorey scoring an absolute belter of a goal for her Norwegian club, Avaldsnes. Um, I think I'm pronouncing that right. Apologies to Norway if not. Um, but it was an absolute belter, long-range goal. And we know with Katrina Gorey, um, she's a confidence player. And when she's up and about, high on confidence, I think all the way back to when she was AFC Player of the Year, I think it's 2014, um, when she's high on confidence, she scores goals, she creates them. She has a go from just about anywhere. Um, she had a real... A fair old goal-scoring drought for the Matildas, um, but broke that duck relatively recently, I think, in the Olympic qualifiers. Um, so we know when she's scoring goals, she's up and about, and that can only be a good thing for our creative midfield prospects. So a little uh, later, you'll love to see it, but uh, good on Katrina Gorey. We also had a debut goal for um, Australian youngster Mary Fowler, who's been at Montpellier for a while now, um, came off the bench and netted her first goal over the weekend. So. Congratulations to Mary Fowler. Um, yeah, hopefully that is the first of many to come for her. So a couple of goals on the continent, um, Marissa. Always good to see. Very good to see. And shout out to Montpellier, just God to your French city. We love you. Famous for some miracles. <laughs> um, but, yes, and I suppose to just wrap out, wrap up the Euro news, uh, Western Sydney or former Western Sydney Wanderer now, Alex Hun signed for Napoli, which is exciting. She'll be linking up with Jacinta Galabadarachchi and Isabel Dalton over there. So it's exciting to see more Aussies heading overseas. We hope she does well over there. Moving things a bit more local, we are entering final season for the MPL competitions that are running cries in Victorian, but we had the MPL ACT Grand Final not too long ago. As our resident Canberra enough, Angela, tell us about what happened in the ACT Grand Final. So it was Canberra FC meeting Belconnen United. These two teams have met, I think this was their sixth Grand Final in a row. So um, they know each other well um, and there's a strong rivalry there. Uh, Canberra 
won the grand final, won the championship or premiership. They've won both. Yeah, they've had a really, really good season. They've gone undefeated. Um, the ACT MPL this year had a compact 10-round season. Um, and, yeah, Canberra have taken pretty much all all the silverware there. And friend of the pod, Grace Gill, scored one of their two goals. So, yep, um, congratulations to Canberra. I also wanted to just do a real Canberra chat shout-out. Oh, my God. That, <laughs> if anyone heard that. Yes. You did? Melon is just showing me where his, his food dish is. So. <laughs> Melon's on the pod, everyone. Um, <laughs> sorry, going back. Real Canberra chat shout out here. So, um, Belconnen United, they're pretty much like the city of like MPL in Canberra. They're just giants in women's football. Everyone knows who they are. It's like a tradition going to Hawker um, to watch the grand final every year and Belconnen are always there. Um, this year they were they had a new coach, so they had Anton Jagorenic. Jagorenic. I've I've seen a couple of different pronunciations, so my apologies if I'm I'm butchering that. He was with the club for I think it was ten years and had nine premierships. Um, and then at the start of the year he had his successor, Sir Alan um, Marin, come in. COVID happened and then um, his young assistant, Ahmed Ugul, stepped up. He's 23 and fun fact, I went to high school with him. We were in the same year. So that's very Canberra. We went to school around the corner from the Hawker Belconnen home ground. Um, and yeah, I think, uh, yes. And so, yes, he's he's very young and yeah, big things to come, I think. So shout out to Ahmed. And also going back to Canberra chat, I just talking about this earlier, I just wanted to say, that Hayley Rasso was the first w, w League player I ever met and I showed her around my school when she signed for Canberra United when I was 15. I was like, this is my school. I have no idea why she was there. I can't remember that that detail. Oh, my God. Oh. <laughs> Here I was, thought, I thought Anna would be the one nipping in the Canberra chat, but no, it's my cat. He's had enough. <laughs> Wrap it up. We're Wrap just going to keep up. going round and roundabouts, otherwise, aren't we, Angela? Oh, and speaking of Canberra chat, we were able, well, Sam was able to chat to a Canberran women's football legend and just general women's football legend, Heather Reid, about the name behind this podcast. Um, we've been holding on to this for a little while now, so very excited to share and expand on the significance of the name The Far Post. And so as your role progressed in the AWSA, you decided to create a newsletter. What was the thing that inspired you to do that? And why did you pick the name that you did? Well, I think communication has always been uh, a very big C word that people like to throw around. And uh, we get accused of not communicating enough, not sharing information well enough. And uh, for me, being in the office um, in the suburb called Hackett, I felt kind of somewhat isolated um, from the full national football community and indeed the international football community. So it was very important to try and um, share as much information as possible outside of a meeting once or twice a year. So I set up the uh, newsletter, which I called The Far Post, um, because I felt that, um, you know, to some extent it's a football terminology, um, I felt that I was sort of in the in the the the, the nether regions, I guess, the, the far outlying uh, posts, and of course, I was using Australia Post for sending the newsletter and 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 other forms of communication. In those days, you would type up a letter, you'd put it in an envelope, and you'd post it to people. Um, so the far post was kind of nice um, analogy for for something that went far and wide via the um, by the the postal service. I nearly called it the Near Post. Um, that later became the name of a fairly successful radio program here in Canberra. But um, I wasn't that near to the people I was communicating with. I felt that I was quite some far away distant from them. So, um, yeah, I think the Far Post uh, had its, had its uh, very important meaning. In putting together the Far Post, uh, it very much was a cut and paste 
exercise. I would type up the articles. I would take out a pair of scissors after printing the, the article and I'd cut them up and I'd lay them out into a, you know, a spreadsheet and, and paste them into columns and, um, and, and fashion it in a way that, uh, that appeared well on the printed page. And then we, um, I think we produced initially uh, three copies per year starting in 1989, a different colour for each edition. And, uh, and I think it was sustained until about 93. Um, I left AWSA 92 and I think Paul Turner may have continued on with a couple of editions after that. But it was, it was very much a labour of love, um, you know, putting together the copy, taking it to the printers, printing maybe 700, 800 copies, taking those copies back to the office, bundling them up so that federations would get uh, various quantities depending on the size of the federation. So the ACT might end up with 40 copies, whereas Queensland might have 80 copies. And the idea was that they would be distributed to their clubs and other interested people. And I also sent uh, a, an individual copy to every one of the national team members and the youth team as well as sponsors. So it was a, it was a long process, but it was a very important process to help inform and educate people about what was happening in the national office and also around the country and around the world. What was some of the content that would go into a newsletter like this? And is it comparable to some of the volunteer-run blogs and other sort of outlets that we have in Australian women's football at the moment, such as Beyond 90, the Ladies' League, the Women's Game, etc.? Yeah, I think it is in the written form, Sam. Um, You know, I used football terminology like at my post, which was, you know, the editorial that I wrote for each edition explaining what had been happening in the previous three or four months and what was going to be in that particular newsletter. I had a column called Kicking Off, uh, which was basically news from meetings um, and anything from the board or other committees that uh, were formed. Then I had another column called Soccer Shorts, Uh, which was snippets of of various bits and pieces of information that either came from players or news that was happening in other areas of of our sport. There was a section on international news um, and and most importantly, the international news um, highlighted the lobbying that we were undertaking to get um, women's football recognised as an Olympic sport, um, which happened in 1996. But, you know, the lobbying and the negotiation and the networking for that commenced in 1988 when I met a whole range of very important um, people involved in football organisations. I was at a tournament in China and, and established some very, very good contacts. So... Um, you know, the lobbying for the Olympic Games, inclusion of women, as well as, of course, the very first World Cup for women, which which eventuated in 91. Um, development details, what was happening within the national teams, um, information from the national coaches at the time. Um, so just trying to bring a football theme to the various columns. Um, I, you know, I cut and pasted some photographs to go in it as well so people could could see uh, players um, such as Julie Murray and Carol Vinson, for example, who were the two first two players that um, I secured overseas contracts uh, for when they went to Fortuna in uh, Denmark and, and other bits and pieces that people sent me. But like a lot of communication, it was pretty much one way. I'd ask for feedback. I'd ask for, you know, content to go in the newsletter, but uh, I didn't really get very much. So um, I was out hunting for the news. And I guess that's what that's what's happening now too with, with um, groups like Beyond 90, um, although the speed of communication is just extraordinary in comparison to what I was dealing with. Can you explain for us what the, I guess, the wider media landscape was like at this time when it came to women's sport and, and women's football more specifically? Like, did you feel like you were sort of on your own in producing this newsletter because there was no real other media coverage to support it? Yes, that was true to a large extent. I mean, I think when women were first starting to play in the 1950s, 70s and especially you know when I was doing some research with Marion Stell for the book that I'll just give a plug for the book um, the uh, women in boots you know the the media coverage of women's 
participation in football in the national team from about 1977 through to 1980-81, there was quite a lot of prolific local news, not a lot of national news, because there wasn't a lot of national activity for, for our Matildas at the time. But um, one thing was clear was that there was still very much a sexist and misogynistic view of women's participating, women participating in what was very much a male-dominated sport. So, you know, we had to go cap, you know, cap in hand to the local newspapers, whether it was National Broadcast or your local paper, um, Daily Telegraph, Canberra Times, etc. And, you know, we would be physically phoning the newspaper editors with stories, with results of games and I think Moya Dodd tells a great story about how she would do that as publicity officer in Adelaide. Every After every uh, weekend on a Sunday night, she'd be on the phone phoning through results and goal scorers and things like that just to try and get something in the results column, let alone something that was actually in the, you know, the editorial and the, and the news section. Most of the news that we got was based on um, oddity or um, impact, you know, if there was some uh, dispute on a, on a field with a referee or there were sisters playing or something else that was a little bit unusual rather than general mainstream, mainstream reporting of what is, um, you know, quality news. So, you know, we, we saw a, a, a drop-off um, in the news coverage in the, during the late 1980s and I think some of that was because women's participation was really getting getting a move on and it was becoming much more serious. You know, we had regular competitions. We had the national championships. Our national team was playing in Oceania tournaments, 1986, 1989. In fact, in 89, we had the Oceania Cup in Brisbane and we really struggled to get mainstream media to, to support, um, you know, coverage of, of the games when Australia's playing New Zealand it's an international fixture. You would expect that there'd be some coverage of it, but it was very, very difficult. So a lot of the imagery and a lot of the content was still quite sexist and, uh, and misogynistic um, uh, because it was women playing a man's game and uh, really should we take that seriously. And, of course, now we see the Matildas as the number one popular sport in Australia. They're getting huge coverage as a team. They're getting huge coverage as individual players, whether that's a Sam Kerr or indeed a, a Aoife Koval, who's just come back to Canberra from being, being in um, uh, uh, at Glasgow. The full pack page of today's Canberra Times is a story about Aoife and her, um, her, her experience in Glasgow. That was unheard, unheard of, of course, in the 1980s. And so just thinking, I guess, more generally and, and projecting perhaps into the future, you know, obviously coverage of women's sport and women's football has increased quite a lot since your time at the, at the AWSA and in coming up with the Far Post. But is there anything more that you would like to see happen in the media space specifically? Well, we're definitely seeing a shifting landscape, aren't we? I mean, newspapers are going bust. You know, I, I don't think... Uh, you know, compared to when we were relying on newspaper coverage in the 80s, 90s, people don't necessarily read newspapers or buy newspapers unless they want the racing section. And we still know that dogs and, and um, horses in racing circles get more coverage than women's sport um, across most media, um, but particularly the newspaper. And, and young generations of people don't read newspapers young generations or any generation now will go to a screen, whether that's a phone, a tablet, a computer, a TV, to find news about their sport. And I think the fact that um, organisations such as FFA or cricket or AFL, uh, in terms of team sports, those organisations have really started to invest more and put more resourcing into women's uh, competitions and their female uh, national teams and, and national identities. So you're going to see more product on TV and indeed via, you know, streaming on computer. That's the big change. It's instant, it's accessible, it's informative, and in many ways it's also quite well produced. But I think we've still got quite a way to go when it comes to the quality of the coverage of games um, with more cameras, better commentary, you know, better um, uh, 
presentation of of games um, before we um, are satisfied to the point that we would like to be. I mean, if you look at the way in which the Women's World Cup in France was covered from a media point of view, that's the standard. It was set previously in Canada and before that in Germany with just the the way in which technology can package something to make it very attractive, very appealing, not just to the football audience but a general audience, whether it's my dear old mum sitting in Monash as she used to be, you know, yelling at the telly um, or, you know, somebody picking up their iPhone and looking at something on their screen. The day of the newspaper, even the day of radio, they're sort of gone. We have to embrace new technology and new ways of doing things and that includes the presentation of the product. And it's very fitting that you say this over a podcast as well, which has become exactly. one of the main yeah, one of the main ways that people yeah. consume football media these days. Well, Heather, thank you so much for talking to me. Um, and I hope that you are proud of what we produce here at the Far Post. Thank you, Sam, and I am indeed. I feel quite privileged that you've uh, named this um, blog series The Far Post. I think it's an excellent title. Again, if you embrace the fact that this is going far and wide, um, you're posting a lot of stuff in different ways. And I posted physically by putting things in a letterbox. This is just a different type of letterbox. So well done to you and the team, and I look forward to um, participating more and, uh, of course, listening to uh, listening to future programs. So, yeah, it was a great chat with Heather. And, um, again, apologies to Heather who is listening to this. I know that we, we promised to, uh, to have our chat in the first or second episode, but everything else happened. So, unfortunately, it had to be delayed a little bit. But I think it's really important, you know, to um, to sort of fill in the, the gaps of, of the history of the women's game here. And I think one of the purposes of this podcast, one of the reasons that we wanted to start it, is because we do have access to the kinds of um, the kinds of people, the kinds of information that we can use to pace together uh, this larger story of the history of the women's game in Australia. So sort of dropping in little uh, sort of interviews like this every now and then I think is going to become uh, a, a bit of a, a tradition for this podcast. I would hope that it is um, so that we can just go and have a bit more of a deep dive into understanding our context and our history and and the, the larger narrative behind why we are where we are and, and how we got here. So, yeah, I was really grateful to have that opportunity to talk to Heather and I hope that everyone learned something. I certainly did. Um, and hopefully it's the, the first of many chats to come about uh, the history of the women's game in Australia. Absolutely. And I want to second Heather's plug for her book, uh, for her book, Women in Boots. It is excellent. I devoured it in like two days and I will pop a link uh, for it probably on our Twitter and in the show notes. So if you are a fan of women's football history and the story of Australian women's football, read the book. It is very good. So let us, we'll change tack. Now let's get into some boots. It's time for the boot. That's me adding the noises. <laughs> Shout out to friend of the pod, Coleman, for the noises, our part-time audio producer, who's ready to boot. So uh, this has probably been one that's going around for a while, but um, I follow Penel Harder on Instagram and she was named UEFA Player of the Year, um, Women's Player of the Year. And I don't know if you guys have seen the trophies that you get for Player of the Year. It's basically a torso, just cuts off at your shirt sleeves. Um, couldn't help but notice that the women's one, it's just very prominent. Your boobs are very prominent on the trophy. So uh, we were watching that. We are like, I don't know about this trophy. We're not sure how long it's been around for, but we're not huge fans of it. So uh, UEFA's Strange Boobs Trophy. We're giving that the boot. Don't you mean that, uh, Harry? Don't you mean the boob? We're giving it the boob. <laughs> <laughs> Just very strange trophies, aren't they? <laughs> like, she has more unrealistic body standards for women. <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> oh. Yes, so the boot, the boob, and everything in between. Angela, you had a boot as well. Yep. Um, so anyone who watched the uh, West Ham Reading game today or yesterday, whatever it was, um, would have noticed it was a, the weather was a bit terrible, and so the camera was getting oh, I can't believe I'm going to say this moistened throughout, <laughs> and 
the operator, camera operator, had to like sort of like wipe it down every once in a while to make sure that everyone could see it was that bad. Um, but then the only goal in the match for Reading, the cloth that they were using, I think it must have slipped off the top of the camera and was just like obscuring the top left corner. And it was just like, this, I, I'm giving that the boot. I, but it was also like kind of funny. I don't know. I don't know if I should be angry about it. But on a more serious note, some of the camera work this past like round for FAWSL could could be better. Uh, not ideal. Yeah, so in the first game, Everton Villa, it was quite noticeable the steep drop um, and how high the camera was, but you can actually see the touchline and see everything that was happening, which was a little bit annoying, um, more so than the little errant cloth in the West Ham Reading lens. But it's also it's a good point, Angela, because like we have experienced this in the W League as well. You know, there are some games that are relegated to like a single camera, and if that camera happens to be a little bit out of focus then that's just what you have to deal with. Um, and so it's, yeah, it's sort of it's something that's I think folds into the larger conversation about the areas of women's football that are improving and that need to improve, that even the single fully professional women's competition in the world still has issues off the field when it comes to things like cameras. You know, there are so many of that. And I know like I did my boot uh, a couple of episodes ago about commentary as well. So, you know, there's a whole bunch of peripheral stuff around the game that still needs to uh, still needs to pick up the pace, I think. Yeah, Sam, that reminded me of, oh, I can't remember who tweeted this and I feel bad about it, but when Farrah Williams scored that um, sensational penalty a couple of weeks back, uh, the Penenka one, and people went, if this was a men's game, we'd get it from every angle. We'd have it behind the player, behind the goal, from the side, maybe from the other side, like, and just get every angle to see how brilliantly executed that play is. And it feels like so often we're lucky to get just an angle of the goal, not necessarily the best angle, let alone multiple angles. So I think that Jukic goal that we talked about off the top, that's only NPL level, but that's a great example. Luckily, we got a really good view of it from behind the player. Mm -hmm. But so often at the top level of women's football even, we don't see goals from the right angle or from every angle. Well, sorry, definitely not from every angle, but from multiple angles. And it's something that you'd love to see because I think that's one way that you can showcase the um, the skill that these players have. Um, so, yeah, clearly lots to improve on. That's an extended boot from us. We we filed that one into the Christine Nenz Olympico deserved more angles file. But, um, <laughs> that's, that's Try calling that one. For- that was a... Uh, when Natasha Dow is claiming it as well, uh, Marissa. <laughs> Extra difficult. As a striker does. As a striker does. All right, let's go 180. Let's do some how goods. Harrow, how good? Hit us. How good? We know Ivy Lewick, Matilda's favourite, Melbourne City champion. Um, she's done a lot of travelling throughout her football career. Um, she's done all parts of Scandinavia. She did college football in the US. She's been a W League stalwart. She's landed herself back in Spain. But you would be forgiven for thinking she is in Brazil because our Ivy playing for Sevilla um, started on the weekend and in the um, Sevilla lineup, she's not listed as Lewick but simply Ivy. One name, like she's Brazilian, her first name. It's fantastic. I can't believe she hasn't done it before. Or if she has, I'm devastated I missed it. So uh, <laughs> Ivy Lewick going by just Ivy, how good. <laughs> Do you know what? I think she has done it before. I'm pretty sure when she was at Levante, so also in Spain last season, she was on the team sheets as Ivy. So maybe it's a Spanish thing. Like, I don't know. But regardless. How good. How good. <laughs> Uh, a recurring how good, or I suppose the, the natural continuation of a how good, uh, Tamika Yollop posted an adorable photo of baby Harley uh, lying on a half-half jersey, one of the only acceptable half-half jerseys to ever exist ever with both <laughs> Kirsty's uh, football fans jersey and Tamika's Matilda's jersey folded. So, you know, you had half Tilly's, half ferns, the last name, the number, and Harley's looking up at it, and it was just the I like not to use the the Snoop Dogg meme, but like that was the cutest shit I've ever seen. Like it was just <laughs> so adorable, and naturally, it's become uh, social media fodder for everyone uh, urging her to pick a side. So 
Harley Rose Yollop once again, how good, you bloody legend. Just love her. And I suppose the the other fun thing about that particular Insta post was the very niche relatability for some of us. Sam, take away. Take it away. Yeah, so speaking of uh, players or future players who may need to pick a side, uh, one India Page Riley, former Brisbane Raw striker, currently playing for Fortuna Huring in Denmark, she is in a bit of a tricky spot uh, at the moment. She is yet to be capped by either Australia or New Zealand. She is eligible for both. And uh, I think it was an eagle-eyed uh, person as part of our group chat found that India had changed her uh, Instagram bio to simply show a New Zealand flag last week. And we had a bit of a freak out, I have to say. I am. I think I tweeted about it even. I am very uh, protective <clears throat> of our butt-scoring striker. I'll be very disappointed if she doesn't declare for Australia. But uh, this week, uh, no pun intended, this week uh, we saw her include an, an Australian flag emoji alongside the New Zealand one. So there is still hope yet. Uh, so India Page Riley leaving us all guessing how good. I got a quick how good, guys. I have to do a birthday shout-out to my sister, Lisa, who almost certainly won't be listening to this. But imagine if she found out we did a podcast on her birthday and she didn't get a mention. Um, so happy birthday, Lisa, who is also mum to Poppy, my niece who cannot get a baby Tilly's kit. Um, <laughs> That's her full name. <laughs> it takes a lot to fit it on the jersey, mostly the whole back. <laughs> This is your this is your Claire Wheeler, Harrow. Is the yeah, is the baby, the baby chili chili And I will not rest, Samantha. I will not rest. <laughs> so uh, yeah, Lisa's birthday, how good. And Marissa, I believe you have a, a very, very good how good for us all to share and enjoy. It's very good. Um I don't think Angela imagined when she first floated the idea of a twenty twenty three pack that um it would reach beyond the four of us here, but it, it has. The people are now all in on the TAP Pact. It has begun with Vito, who works at FFA with the Matildas. He is in. He is challenging friend of the pod, Anno Dong, to get in on it. I hope she does. And there's no pressure, but you gotta you got to do it. you got to do it. We're all going to do it. I've seen other people in my stalking of Twitter talking about how good of an idea it is. So I think we're officially starting the tap pact we're all just going to walk around like a giant cult with never say die tattoos so (laughs) all of us getting never say die tats how good how good how good how good And with that, let's wrap up this episode. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed it. Don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you happen to listen to us on. So Spotify, Apple, Google, leave your reviews, leave your comments, tweet at us. We like talking to you at the Far Post Pod and we will catch you all next week. See yous.